Let's refresh before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's refresh. This church, Paul is writing a letter to while he's in prison in Ephesus. He had spent a year and a half in Corinth and he had left Athens after preaching this amazing sermon uh, against agnostics on the, in the Areopagus, and he had no converts. And now he comes into Corinth, fear and trembling, trusting with God, not trusting in his own efforts, completely dependent on the Lord and praying. One of the main leaders in the synagogue comes to Christ. He's one of the foundations of that. He spends a year and a half discipling them. Imagine having a, uh, the Apostle Paul in your church for a year and a half. Having, and it's not, you're not coming to church on a, on a Sunday and a Wednesday for an hour and a half. When the Apostle Paul comes, you're in class for three to six hours at a time, two times, maybe three times a day. So just put that together. And I don't want any complaining. And by the way, they would stand while he would sit. So stop it, all right? And in the course of all this, the Apostle Paul is pouring into their lives. They're, they're completely knowledgeable in all these things. The gifts of the Spirit, as we're going to see, are all present. Paul leaves. All of a sudden, sectarianism kicks in. What is sectarianism? It's exactly what we experience with denominations. It's how we define ourselves as a church different from the church over on that corner and why you should come to our church and why we want to get buildings, budgets, and baptisms, the three B's, butts in the seats, And so we go through this and we have sectarianism. We go, well, we're pre-trip, pre-millennial. We're post-trip, pre-millennial. Well, we're all millennial. Well, uh, we believe in infant baptism. Well, we believe in adult baptism. Well, we believe in sprinkling. Well, we believe in full submersion. Well, we believe that you do it in a public area. Well, we believe that we do it in a little private thing in here. And then, and everybody's got their deal. Well, we wear a suit and we only teach out of the King James version. Well, we wear blue jeans and and new King James and whatever you bring. And we believe the gifts are spirit. Well, we believe that the gifts died with the apostles. Mm. And you can see how sectarianism starts to divide. And what are we doing? We're, we're picking fly... I always say this. I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it again. Fly poop out of pepper. We're just we're nitpicking all the little details while the world around us, we ignore Corinth. And remember Corinth? Remember Corinth? Awful city. Thousand temple prostitutes coming down from the temple of, of Athena, coming into the city to ply their trade, not just prostitutes that would work the, the circuit going through each of these different large cities in, in uh, Eurasia. These were wives and daughters of citizens of the city of Corinth that were required once a year to ply their trade and come down and, and, and prostitute themselves and then take the money and send it to the temple to keep the temple running. So this entire city is a mess. And now the church comes in. And the church is now becoming a subculture instead of a counterculture. It's not changing Corinth. It's being changed by Corinth and trying to adapt to Corinth. So now they have strife, envy, and division. And where's that come from? They were all birthed in Christ. They were all born again. The apostle Paul came in. They all received Christ. They were all born again. They believed in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. They believed in the heart, confess with the tongue, Jesus is Lord. They raised their hand. They, the, the work, the scripture says, he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. They did that. Paul discipled them, taught them in all these things, showed them Corinth. This is how you affect Corinth. And then he left. And instead of engaging in the culture and building relationships and sitting down with this fellow running for city council and engaging this person who runs a portion of the city of very great influence, and instead of, instead of doing these things, they started nitpicking with each other and sectarianism. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. Remember this? Do you remember this? Are we, hello? Okay. And so all of a sudden they have divisions. And the divisions are, they're defining themselves by what they don't do as opposed to what they do. And now the church is imploding, and they're like little children. And he calls them babes. He says, I wanted to give you meat, but you could only handle the milk. You remember the picture last week, wasn't that tragic? Of the man who's in 37 years of age, and he still lays in a crib and sucks on a bottle? Didn't that disturb everybody in the room? I mean, a baby with a bottle is cute. An adult with a bottle is tragic. And what he's saying is, you're not feeding upon the word of God. I have to feed you. You're not growing. There's no application. You're stunted. You're new creatures. You've been born, but you're not mature. And you want to be the center of attention. And you, and you, you cry and you whine until everyone focuses on you. And then it creates strife, envy, and division within the body of Christ. And then everyone divides. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. And so Paul lays this out. And now he has defined the problem 
And now with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's going to address it. So I will read. Verse 1. You know what? Let's stand. I know we do it on Sundays. Let's do it on Wednesdays. It'll wake you up. Some Christian calisthenics. Amen. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the increase. God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. But God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. The word is actually husbandmen. It means those who tend to, listen, those who tend to garden or a field. Tracking me? What did God say in the garden? Tend it. All right. You were God's field. You were God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that, that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though as through fire. Do you not know, here we go, pay attention. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. I'll I'll explain that momentarily. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You know what holy means? Sanctified, set apart, right? Okay. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Amen. We can go home after that. You want to, don't you? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask your blessing. Lord, please, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. And Lord, we are, we are your field waiting to receive the, the seed of your word that we would be fruitful. And we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. So this sectarianism is exactly where we are today in America with the church. We've never had more technology, more ability in, in, in a long time than we've had at this moment in, in, uh, in church history. And yet the church is so ineffective. Uh, denominations are in decline. Uh, effectiveness of the church is in decline. Uh, holding to the word of God is inerrant and truthful and on and on and on. It's, it's waning. And the influence of the church in America is rapidly declining. And you can just look at social barometers and you can see this is the case. And yet, what are the largest churches in America? Name for me, if you can, five preachers that you've heard that uh, on the radio or you've seen on TV that are remarkable. You've read their books. Uh, you've, you've heard of their churches. Come on, give me. Uh, they, they have to still be alive. I'm sorry? Alistair Begg. Andy Stanley. Chuck Swintall. Chuck's, huh? John Hagee. Robbie Zacharias. Nobody said that but him, and he's the one who doesn't even... Joel Olstein? Anybody listen to Joel? <laughs> the, the place is packed. Uh, so, so this is... And uh, every one of those guys, they got the coolest voice, they got the neatest hair. Huh? 
Greg Laurie. He, he doesn't have the coolest hair, he's, but he, he, makes, he makes it look good, though. He, we, he, he has the same barber as Mayor Fox. And, and, and as you have this picture of these, these guys, they've got amazing radio voices. They've got television, uh, you know, they, just buttery voice. Chuck Swindoll, when you hear him speak, it's like fireside chat listening to cool stories. Yes? Yep. Epic. And, and the way that you get a radio program is you got to really work it. You go into, in, into radio areas and you have to work the market and you got to meet with the Radio Broadcasters Association and you, da, 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 and you build that and then you got to send out free things and then people start donating and then the program pays for itself and then you got this national audience and, and everybody feels as though Chuck Swindoll's their pastor. How many people here have personally met Chuck Swindoll? Raise your hand. Three people. Okay, how many people have met Alistair? Well, Alistair came here. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, how many people have met Greg Laurie? Three, four, five. So, so uh, you've had really cool conversations. If I asked him, he, they'd know he'd know who you are. No, okay, I didn't think so. Uh, yeah, whatever. So, as, as you, so, so as you see this, we we have created we have created what we call Christian famous. Christian famous. We've taken the secular idea, secularism, we've taken the secular idea, sectarianism, and we've created segments that are popular. Look what we've done with Christian music. It's the same thing. And, and how do you promote books? The same way. Now, is it wrong? No. But what we've created are subcultures as opposed to countercultures. Subcultures as opposed to countercultures. And in this case, this is what's happened in Corinth. They haven't changed the culture. They haven't changed the culture. Four of the ten largest churches in America are in Houston, Texas. And they had a lesbian mayor that was elected by less than 8% of the voting populace. The four churches alone could have dominated the election had they engaged in the culture. They did not. So the point is, they may be thinking they're doing wonderful things, but Corinth isn't changing. You got that? And they're not changing Corinth. Corinth is changing them because in chapter four, we're going to see what's happening. There's division among them. There's a man sleeping with his father's wife. They're drunk at the communion table. They are a royal mess. And Paul says, you know what? We got a serious problem here. We got an enormous problem. And he says it's the sectarianism that you guys are fighting each other instead of contending out there. You're fighting each other instead of contending out there. The, the, people would rather go through, and, and not to dismiss eschatology, but we'd rather sit through a prophecy update of the, uh, of, of the rapture and look at you know pending ideas of the rapture than we would about understanding how to change the community, whether it's educationally, politically. I'd rather, I'd rather see signs of the rapture, right? And we can do all-day conferences. If I did a conference for pastors on politics, we wouldn't get many. If we did one and we brought in some really great theologians on, on eschatology, we'd pack the place. Because one is getting to look internally and we get to alienate and ostracize other pastors and then you get this sectarianism that breaks down. Cephas, Apollos, Paul. And he finally looks at it and he says, this church, you have everything you need. You have the word of God. You've been born again. You have the gifts of the spirit and you're making no difference in the world. Does that sound familiar? And he said, look, it's not about it's not about popularity. Everybody wants to tune in to the radio preacher instead of be effectual and servant in a quiet little congregation. We want to be a part of the biggest thing in town. They've got zip lines and they've got climbing walls. And, they, and not to dismiss the churches that have that. If you go there, go there for the reason to serve. Don't go there because you're shopping a church at what best entertains you. People come and they say, what does this church have to offer? I love it when people ask me that. I go, you know, I don't really think you should be the one asking questions. I'm going to ask you a question. What do you have to offer? Yeah. 
What are you bringing to the body of Christ? We're a community committed to serving the Lord. I'm not sure what you're asking. Are we here to, I'm sorry. I don't believe that this church is friendly. Well, there's room for another one. (laughs) The idea is you come into a church to serve. And Paul calls himself a servant. And the word over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians 3 is doulos, bond slave, under rower. It's the person at the bottom of the Roman galley. He doesn't have a name. He's got a number. And he rows. He doesn't even know where they're going. He's just rowing. Doesn't even really have a window if he's on the inside seat. He has an aisle seat, but he can't see. And even the guy who's there is chained, and he can't really even see where they're going because it's just going by. And, and the guy on the outside has to pull a little hard, and the other guy's just kind of doing this. And it's, this is the worst job in the boat. It's hot, it's sweaty, it's miserable, and Paul says, that's who you are in the body of Christ. It's not about Apollos, it's not about Cephas, it's not about me. It's about us being servants. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. Take an oar and row. Take an oar and row. It's not about your notoriety. It's not about sectarianism. It's not about who's the coolest. Quit building on the world's ideas. The kingdom is won by servants. Now, what's amazing about a servant, when does a servant speak? We've covered this. When does a servant speak? When spoken to? When do they offer their opinion? Well, when asked. That's insulting. Can I get an amen? Nobody wants to be that. And the Bible says that we're to serve and we're to love our enemies and to do good those spitefully use us. You have to sit at a table with somebody who's worked against you in four elections. You've got to sit in a coffee shop and engage that person and want to minister to life. And the flesh, I, and I'm not elevating myself. Please understand, I want to tell you every single occurrence where that happens, my initial response is, no. No. They hurt me. No, God. The Lord says, yes, Rob. And can you say, no, Lord? Do those words go together? No. no. He's not Lord. Right? There's only two words that can go together. Yes, Lord. Now you can fight it. And, and he may be Lord and you may be disobedient. We're going to see that in a moment. But the idea is you yield. It's not my life. I was purchased with a price. I am the field of God. I am the husbandman. I work. I tend. I care. I take an oar. I row. And, and as we lower our understanding in the body of Christ, the kingdom moves forward and we don't have enemies. We now only have, what is it? Opportunities. And everybody has that chance to be reached because we're dead and we can't be insulted. And the only time that that rises up and I say, no, Lord, is when I'm sitting on the throne and I got to get off. So in this picture, Paul is laying it out and he says, look, it's not the one who plants. It's not the one who waters. It's God who gives the increase. It's God who gives the increase. How does he do that? One man plants, another man waters. What are they planting? A seed. A seed. Nobody can even make one of those. It's, it's, it's this obscure thing that grows in. Have you ever seen a, an acorn? And you see these majestic oaks. I mean, the, the three oak trees at City Hall are majestic. Started with that sucker. Put in the ground, soil, air, water, sunlight, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, boom. Fascinating. What is it? Laws of nature, nature's God. They get to experience the fullness of what they were created to be. They were given the expanse to do it. And people protected them for 300 years. And here they are. And, and the oak trees at, at, at City Hall, lions slept under those. They did. Jungle land. The stories they could tell. They probably saw Spaniards come through. Pfft. Crazy, isn't it? And, and all this from a little seed. Where's that seed? God made it. And what does he want? He wants it planted in fertile soil with all the elements of nature, the laws of nature and nature's God, so that it can experience its fullness of what it was designed to be. So what is our role if we tend the garden and we're his husbandmen is that we want to create a world where every individual creating the image of God has everything necessary to experience the fullness of what God intended them to be, right? And that's done through service, not through oppression, not through sectarianism, not through pride. It's done through humility. 
And Paul lays this out. He says, look, you're just watering. You're just, you, you planted. Oh, oh, you dug a hole. Good, good, good for you. you. You dug a hole. Look at you. And you watered. Where'd you get that water? Did you make it? No. No, I went over the stream and I got it. Where'd that stream come? Well, the rains came in the snows and then it went up into the mountains and then it melted a certain season and came down. And then uh, we, I got it and I brought it over. And when I pour it on, it's amazing. This little thing goes. (laughs) And what did you do? I dug a hole. I dug a hole. I dug a hole. I'll leave you with this one story and we'll move on. We're almost. I haven't even gotten to the slides yet. And we're going to finish on time. Trust me. Uh, I love this story. My pastor, Don McClure, three sons. They were sitting in the back seat of a brand new car he purchased back when they had just come out with electric windows. You know the old ones where you had to roll them down? They're in the back seat. And he was telling the story at a pastor's conference about preaching. And the three boys are in the back seat and they go, Dad, where are the knobs roll down the windows? Don, is he's a character. He goes, boys, this is a very special car. You have to command the windows. Command them to go down. And he's got the master controls here. And the boys are like, oh, okay. So the first boy goes, we're... Window down. He goes, no, son, say it with authority. Window down. And he presses, oh, oh. And the other one goes, window up, down. He's just moving. And everybody's laughing. And he goes, you know what, fellas? And he's talking to the pastor. He says, when you're preaching, all you're doing is saying window up and window down. And God's controlling everything. So get over yourselves. It's his word that doesn't return void. It's his spirit that transforms lives. Get over yourself and get over who it is you've elevated to make yourself significant because you're following that person. Serve, grab an oar and row. And he lays this out. He says, you're digging holes and you're pouring water. God's doing everything else. We're fellow workers with you in this field. And he goes through this whole picture and then look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay that than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And you build on that. So everything we do in culture has to reflect Christ in the foundation of what we do. Even in our education. What is the foundation of Jesus Christ in education? Jesus is the word, Yes. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word became flesh, dwelt with man. So what is the foundation if Christ is to be the foundation in education? Faith comes from hearing and... Okay, where does wisdom come from? Where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of... So if you take that out, do our children have wisdom? They have knowledge. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is using that for the glory of God, right and wrong. How do we know that stealing is wrong? God's word. How do we know that lying is wrong? God's word. If we remove that, who sets the standard? And who is in charge? And by what standard would they ever be wrong? And can't we just move the scale? Right? very first public school act in America, the old Satan deluder act, 1647. And the whole purpose was to teach children how to read. That's the foundation laid for education. What's the foundation laid in politics? It says in, in Leviticus, that you're to appoint men that are not covetous and fear God and put them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, federal, state, county, local representative form of government. Look at these foundations. This is the principle for what he's saying, that you change culture. He's talking to these Corinthians. He's saying, you have got to get over yourself and build this foundation, and you build it with gold and precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear on the day uh, that it will be revealed by fire. Everything will be burned up. Only what's done for Christ will last. You build these massive monuments to yourself. You have your name on the building. You've got whatever it is. God's not interested. What's the only thing going to heaven? Yeah, souls, people. You want to build on a foundation? Reach people. How do you reach people? You have a relationship with them. You get to know them. 
Well, I only want to get to know the ones I, I like. Well, that's not much of a servant. Right? Do you not know that you're a temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I want to stop at this because this is where he really drove the point home with the, with the, uh, the church at Corinth. Pay attention to this. We're going to go through the study tonight on this. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Bible says if, if you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved the glory of the Father. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ resides in you. You're a new creature in Christ. Soma, psyche, and now the Spirit of God. And you're a full creature, body, soul, and spirit. And now you're walking. Instead of the, the body telling the mind what to do, you're turned right side up, and the Spirit tells the mind what the body's to do. And you buffet yourself, and you become into subjection to the Lord. And you honor him, and you're walking as he always intended you to walk in the fullness of a complete man, body, soul, and spirit. And as you do this in your temple of the Holy Spirit, he says this, he says, you are a vessel. If anyone defiles the temple of God, this vessel, you're sanctified, you're set apart for him. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now the Bible says he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. You can't even do it yourself. I don't want to be here anymore. Try opening God's hand. It ain't going to happen. Right? And if you can lose eternal life, again, it was never eternal to begin with. Right? So your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. I've told you this, that you may know you have eternal life. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. I've told you this so that you may know you have, what? Eternal life. Now my point is this. You are now his. He bought you with his blood and his body on that cross, and you received it, and he owns you. Right? You aren't bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of God. And you're his. And he takes up residence. His Holy Spirit is a seal. You know what a seal is? A seal is a mark owned by God. You got it right there. And it's it's, it's what a king would do to declare it as his. The Roman seal on the tomb. And so he puts his seal, the Holy Spirit, and there it is. Now, you are set apart for his glory. Every one of the people in Corinth had been born again, and they were set apart. Every one of them, born again, set apart. Now, were they doing what God wanted them to do? No, they were failing in Corinth. They were adapting to the city instead of transforming the city. And God says... If anyone defiles a temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So who's going to get destroyed? The temple or the people messing with the temple? Okay, you said it, and I want you all to hear it. Who's going to be destroyed? What's going to be the temple or the people messing with the temple? The people messing with the temple. And who are you if you're a Christian? Temple. Got it? Here's an illustration. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You are the temple. Somebody messes with you, they die. Daniel 5. These are the vessels in the temple. These are set apart. They're sanctified. They're holy. What does that mean? For God's use. You are set apart for whose use? Now, can other people use God's vessels? You bet. Belshazzar, Daniel 5, he called for the holy vessels. He brought them in and he started partying with them. He poured wine in them. He was drinking out of them. He was fondling them. He was putting his lips all over them, his nasty hands. He was pouring wine into them. Does it sound like a Christian at a party? You're letting the wine go in. You're letting people touch you and tracking me. This is a Christian at a party. The vessel is the believer. Set apart, holy vessel, sanctified unto God. You're at the party. And the world doesn't know you're a believer because you're in a subculture and you're adapting. Yeah, you're born again. Yeah, you got your get out of hell free card. Yes, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, But if you're being put on trial for being a Christian, you're not changing that culture. You're an inanimate object. 
You're just still. And everyone's messing with you and they're having a party. And in the midst of it, God finally just says, you know what? Done deal. Meeny, meeny, tekel, farson. The finger of God appears and writes into this wall. You've been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting. And it says that Belshazzar's knees shaked and his, his bowels were loosed. You can figure that out on your own. Don't bother washing them, just burn them, right? And he's stunned. Meeny, meeny, tekel, farson. That's where we get the vernacular in, in our language. The handwriting is on the wall out of Daniel 5. So Christian at a party, you're still sanctified, you're still saved, but you're an inanimate object, not changing the culture. The culture's messing with you. The party's still going on and every, and you know what happened that night in Daniel five? Does anybody know what happened? They all died. (laughs) Do you not know that you're a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. The entire community is waiting for you to minister to them. But if you're an inanimate object and you're silent and you're part of the party and you're a subculture and you're adapting and nobody knows and you're wearing camouflage and you're just kind of going through the motions and you're blowing sunshine their way and you're sectarian and you're all about everything else the world's about, it's just a party and the vessels are being messed with. And you know who dies? You don't. You know, I, I, I went to the party to find a boyfriend. If you're, you know, I'm, I'm single and there just aren't any cute guys in the church. And I, he's really cute and I know he's going to get saved. <laughs> well, you know, I just, he doesn't understand chastity, doesn't understand. So I've just compromised a little bit, but he'll come around. That vessel is, is being defiled. You're still going to heaven You got your get out of hell free card. Good for you. But they're not. They have no idea. It's all compromise and camouflage. And the party's raging and the vessels are inanimate and they're they're still. You know, I don't vote. I don't really get into education. I don't want to go to the school board meeting. No voice. Subculture, quiet, unassuming, distant, and the world implodes around you. But good for you, you're going to heaven, but everyone around you isn't. And this is the one that's interesting. It goes on to say, let no one deceive himself, verse 18. If anyone among you seems wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. But this is what blows me away. Look at verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as though as through fire. Saved as through by fire. My wife's grandfather died in a fire. In 1967, when my, my mother-in-law was pregnant with my wife, her father died in a fire. The mother, uh, Michelle's grandmother, made it out alive. Her aunt and her uncle made it out alive. Uh, D, my mother-in-law, wasn't there at the time. They lost all their possessions, their family photos. They got out with even ragamuffin clothes because it, it was at night and it was winter and, and everything burned, everything. And actually, he went back in because he didn't know where they were and he died of smoke inhalation. He was an admiral. He had, he had won the Navy Cross, second only to the Medal of Honor. He was a war hero. He had sunk the Nagato, the command ship of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was mourned throughout the country on his death. And the family got out with just what they had they were wearing everything else was burned they were saved as though through fire and this picture that God gives us is you're building on this foundation what is foundation Christ so what does the foundation look like in politics what does foundation look like in education what does the foundation look like in business what does it look like in arts and entertainment and media and go down the line right in family 
And that foundation you build on, how do you build on it? By prayer, by seeking God, by applying scripture, by engaging in those areas and making a difference in your community and being a counterculture instead of a subculture where the world knows and they don't, they don't mess with the vessels of God. And the, and the vessels aren't inanimate, they're alive and they change the world. But guess what? Here's one man, his name's Abraham. The Bible says in Galatians and also in Genesis that Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. His faith. Taking God at his word. Doing what God said. It's a pretty novel concept, isn't it? Could you imagine? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And acting upon it. Going to a nation that he knew not of. Leaving his family, his kindred, on and on and on. His wife, Sarah, calling him Lord, whose, whose daughters you are, the scripture says, of the women. And then they go, they, go to, they go to Canaan. They left a gated community to go to a rust bucket, desert cesspool. And God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He doesn't have a kid till he's in his hundreds and she's in her 90s. Faith. Faith. Taking God at his word, doing what he's asked you to do. And what's amazing, you start to see God move in that regard. You put your fear aside and you move forward in faith and you start to see worlds change. And what happened with Abraham? This is the father of faith. Judaism, Christianity, everyone who's connected comes through Abraham. Isaac. Right? You tracking me? But he had a nephew. And this nephew, this, this guy was pretty cool. The Bible says Abraham believed God has accredited him as righteousness. You know what righteous means? Right with God. It means you're saved. It means there's nothing that separates you from having a relationship with God. His nephew was just like that. God says in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. But he delivered righteous lot. Righteous lot. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, called him righteous twice, dwelling among them, tormented, whoa, 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 what? His righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing of their lawless deeds. Righteous man, twice righteous soul. Anyone in the room have their name written in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible with your name not you having the name of someone else, but you personally being listed and God says next to your name, righteous. I didn't think so. Lot does, not once, not twice, three times. Pretty fascinating. This guy is amazing. Righteous man, righteous soul. God calls him righteous. Not in the Old Testament, New Testament. So we're really, I mean, hello. Who is this guy? We, have, we need to model our lives after him. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He knows how to work with people who are struggling, just like the church in Corinth. And Peter points this out. So we got to know who this righteous guy is. Let's learn about him. Here he is. He told God, hey, Abraham said, look, we're warring with each other. We'd been down to Egypt. We came out. You really liked Egypt. We're out here in this area. Our shepherds are kind of clashing with each other, so we have to pick different land. And he says, Abraham says, look, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You just pick whatever you want. So he picks this area that reminded him of Egypt. And Abraham goes, all right, best fertile land. He's looking with his eyes. And Abraham took whatever God gave him by faith. Lot goes down there, and there in that area that he took was Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw the plains. And he thought, ah, so he goes in and he becomes an elder in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. An elder, a gatekeeper. And, and God's going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sends angels in there. And Abraham's up there interceding on behalf of his nephew. And he, he sends angels in to deliver Lot. Why? Because Lot's righteous. And what's fascinating is the angels come in and all the men of the city want to have sex with the angels. You know what Lot does? He's such a righteous man. You know what he does? 
He, off, yeah, he offers his daughter. What a, what a righteous man that is. Is anyone struggling with that so far? Even when he told his son-in-laws, listen, God's going to bring judgment. You know what his son-in-law said? Where did you come up with this? Basically, what they're saying is, when did you get religious? You're like an inanimate object. You may be sanctified, but you haven't been doing anything in this city but adapting. You haven't changed Sodom and Gomorrah. You've adapted to it. When did you get religious? And adapting, you know what? I can't kill the angels. Take my daughter. The angels strike them all blind. He says, grab everyone. The brothers, the son-in-laws are like, we're not going with you. He just takes his two virgin daughters. He says, let's go. He brings his wife. His wife's like, I don't want to go. We're leaving Nordstrom. No, no, no. And they all start to flee the city. And, and Lot's wife, she's like, Nordstrom's is burning. As all the stuff is coming down. And you know the story. She turns into a pillar of salt. She's like, Cows come liquor, salt lick. And she turns, in, she turns into a pillar of salt. He gets up into the hills with his two daughters, the only surviving members, and they get him drunk because he's just so depressed. They get him drunk, and each one of them sleeps with him, and they both become pregnant by their father. Okay, I'm done. This is... Why in the world would Peter put this as righteous lot? Can anyone help me here? I don't need help. I mean, not for this. I need for a lot of other things. Sleeps with his daughters. They both become pregnant. Thus, both daughters of Lot were with child by their fathers. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she is also uh, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. The Ammonites and the Moabites, both are enemies of God's people. And yet God called him righteous. And the scripture says, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. You know that you're a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles that temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Take heed how you build on this. No other foundation but that which is of Christ. And you see this and you think, wait a minute. How is that possible? And it endures. The work endures. Well, the work endures. We're set apart. We're sanctified. We're vessels. We're saved by fire. He was saved by fire. The entire city burned. He got out with his daughters. And he still was a wretch. And we're almost finished. Because a lot of you are struggling over this. Are you saved by what you've done? You've been saved in spite of what you've done. Me too, right? How have you been saved? By grace through faith, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody gets to boast. You're not special. You're not saved by what you did. You're saved by what he did. All we are servants. We like to elevate ourselves and think that we're special because we have the theology and we've got all this down. Good. Lot had it down too, and he was a loser, and Abraham had it down, he, he succeeded. But don't, don't get me wrong, Abraham still had his issues. He was willing to give his wife to Pharaoh to sleep with her, and uh, tw- not once but twice. Mm. And he actually slept with Hagar, even when his wife wasn't thrilled about it, and Ishmael was born, we know that, and he's the father of all of Islam. Thanks, Abraham. So don't think yourself more highly than Yacht. The only thing in this room that's good is Jesus. And if you have a trouble with Lot, don't because it gives you hope. <laughs> and if that, if that hurts you, that's pride. I'm no, I'm no Lot. There are times you have been. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. The difference is 
Lot became a subculture. Abraham became a counterculture. Lot became an inanimate object that was fondled and poured wine into, and everyone in the city died. Abraham changed the world. And the amazing thing is, if we go back to this, God says, the Lord knows how, verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He tormented his eyes and his ears by giving himself audience to the things of this world. Righteous lot, righteous soul, righteous man. And you know what? You just become like the culture when you're trying to adapt. And if you don't engage the culture, you don't change it. And nobody can figure out, and you just become a vessel at a party. And then one day, you're delivered as though by fire. Your wife dies, and you get out with your two kids. And you can take Lot out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Lot. And he sleeps incest with his two daughters. And the next thing you know, you got the Moabites and the Ammonites. How does God fix that? He can even take tragedy like this and work it together for good. That's faith. And he took, this, this is the economy of God's grace. This is how he's going to take folks like you and me with our sinful past and our sinful present. He's going to inspire us to change the world that we become like Abraham and start taking him at his word and we become active vessels that transform a culture instead of passive vessels that are mauled and fondled. And You, you tracking me? And what happens is if you move forward by faith and obey God, he takes what Satan intended for evil and he uses it together for good, even your past. Moabites, Moabites. Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the lineage of Jesus Christ. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Who was Ruth? Well, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, the king. And we know that Jesus is from the lineage of, of the lion of the king of Judah, David, son of David. Who is Ruth? Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess. God can even take all the stuff and the junk in our past, and when we walk by faith, he puts us in the lineage of Christ. And the question is, do you want to be a righteous Abraham or a righteous Lot? You're here because of Abraham. Ruth is here in spite of Lot. She's in the lineage in spite of Lot because by faith she obeyed. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will follow. Yes? And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. A man who operated by faith took God at his word and didn't become a passive vessel but an active vessel changed the world. And Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, the only ones dying are the ones that mess with you. And if you're not going to engage Corinth, Corinth will mess with you. And they're all going to be dead. I've put you on this earth to change it and to be a blessing to all nations. Now, quit, quit fighting amongst yourselves and get out there and do something, please, God says. Oh, but it's scary. Well, it was scary leaving Ur of Chaldees for Canaan. And he did it, and thank God he did, or we wouldn't be here. Paul left being a Sanhedrin and a Pharisee. A Sadducee, no, Sanhedrin and a Pharisee. Abandoned everything. Thank God that he did, or we wouldn't be here. He became a counterculture instead of a subculture. He wasn't a passive vessel. He was active. They didn't mess with him. He messed with them. You got your get out of hell free card, but are you a lot or are you an Abraham? And then I'll just do this last part. When he talks about this idea that 
that I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Got to work. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me. You know the parable of the sowers in the gospel? It's covered in a number of areas. It's broken into four different types of ground. You have the hard ground, you have the rocky ground, you have the weed-choked ground, and then you have the fertile ground. And the sower goes out and he throws the seed. It says that the weed choke, or the, the hard ground, it never gets in, so it doesn't experience its fullness. The birds come and eat it, it's gone. The rocky soil, it goes in a little bit, but it has nowhere for the roots to go. The sun comes out, the plant burns, dies, done. The weed choke soil, it comes up, but there's weeds in it, so it never gets to maturity, and all the cares of this world choke it out, and it dies. Only that which is on fertile soil produces a 30, 60, 100-fold return. Return. One man plants, another man waters. Well, here's what we get to do. We're laborers in his kingdom. We get to labor. And guess what? When I first read this, I wanted to quit Christianity. And I certainly didn't want to become a pastor. It meant that I would only get a 25% return on my investment. 75% of the people I would work with would be gone. Terrible. Until I met a farmer. I'll never forget what he said. You know the difference between that hard soil and that rocky soil and that weed choke soil? No. It just needs to be plowed. You just got to labor and pull the stones out, and you just got to dig harder. Till it, turn it, mess with it, you'll gill it. And then everything's fertile. And I remember driving through Ireland with the lanes and my wife and looking at rows and rows of these stone walls. They're beautiful. They've been there for hundreds of years. Fertile green fields, as far as the eye can see. You just drop seed in it, grows. It's like Uganda. It's like the Eden of the world. You, you can put a stick, a dry stick in the ground, it'll blossom. That's, that's Ireland. And I realized all of those walls were made by men and women digging into that ground, pulling that sucker out, walking over and putting it on the boundary and going back and getting another stone and then putting it. And they made those fields fertile. And the only way that you're going to make the hard ground the stony ground and the weed choke ground fertile is to get out there and labor. And when you labor, there's a 30, 60, 100 fold return because you duplicate your life. And at the end of your life, you'll get into heaven and you'll see the reward waiting for you because fire will burn it up and the only thing going to heaven is people. And the way that you prepare the soil is that the foundation you lay is Jesus in every mountain of cultural influence. Get out there and apply Christ in every aspect. Don't be a subculture. Be a counterculture. Don't be an inanimate object that's messed with by the world because they're all going to die if that's all you're going to be. Be a living object. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have legs and arms. You have a heart. You have a mouth. You have eyes and ears. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. 